pace. We really try and shoot to do an average of three chapters a week. Um, I also try and uh, stop at places that make sense. The Bible is a piece of literature, and so it conveys the things it wants to say in sets of communication, um, whether you're reading an epistle of Paul and you're moving through an argument paragraph by paragraph, or you're moving through a narrative like the book of Exodus, and so you've got stories made up of smaller stories. There's natural places to stop and unnatural ones. In the same way that we end sentences with punctuation instead of just stopping mid-sentence. Um, tonight, it might seem like we should have covered this chapter last week. It really is kind of the final piece of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. Uh, but leaving it for tonight was intentional because when we look at how the rest of the Bible views this episode at the Red Sea, it sees it not merely as an end of a story, but as a beginning. And so uh, this becomes kind of the pinnacle beginning of the nation of Israel. This is the way that it's seen. They're the ones who came out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And so sometimes this imagery of the defeat that happens with Pharaoh and his armies here is just the summary version given for the entire Exodus. Instead of talking about all of the plagues and all of the slavery, it just talks about this great victory as being the defining point. For example, in the book of Isaiah or in the Psalms. Um, a good il illustration of this beginning that we're talking about you see in 1 Corinthians. When Paul is trying to make a comparison between the church and their relationship with Jesus and Israel in the Old Testament, he points out that all of them were baptized into Moses through the Red Sea. And when he uses that phrase of baptism, it speaks of beginnings, right? As It speaks of an entry point. And so he draws that same line. And so it was valuable to leave this chapter unfinished so that we could get that emphasis tonight. And so we pick up somewhat in the heat of the story. We saw last, uh, last week in chapter 13... Um, <coughs> that after the Passover, Israel's been brought out. They're now being led by this pillar of fire by night and this cloud by day. And we also saw that God was taking them in kind of a, um, a detour-like manner in a direction that didn't make much sense. In fact... Um, in fact, here in chapter 14, we'll see that they double back on the ground that they've made. And so they move and they head in one direction and then they turn around and head the other direction. Um, and that's what kind of sets up the tension of our chapter. We'll pick up in verse 1 here. Then the Lord said to Moses, <coughs> Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hathoroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephron, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. <coughs> and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. 
And so what we see here is that they double back for a specific reason, basically to spring a trap. God's using Israel like bait, and he's dangling them before the eyes of Pharaoh. And he says, what's going to happen is Pharaoh's going to hear reports of your travels not making any sense. First, because you didn't just go straight through the wilderness, uh, but took this detour, avoiding the Philistines and their outposts. And then second, because you turned around and came back and settled (coughs) where you had camped yesterday. But we can see here, God has one last scene in the story he's telling, one last victory to have over Egypt, and so this is intentional. Now, this is what he tells Israel to do, and they do so, and we jump back to the throne room in Egypt in verse 5. When the king of Egypt (coughs) was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, what is this we have done? so that we let Israel go from serving us. And so what happens here is the report comes into Pharaoh, that's it. In the middle of the night, Israel left. Um, They had been sent out, Pharaoh had commanded for them to go. Their neighbors were ushering them to hurry up and get out because they were afraid. But now the emotions have settled. And he looks at this and he kind of has a facepalm moment and he sees uh, the, the consequence of what he's just done, that their entire slave labor force is gone, that they've overnight become an impoverished nation, um, and, and he has regrets. So verse 6, he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And so he gathers both the first guard, the best of the best of the chariots, um, the chariot seals, if you will. Uh, And then he takes the rest of the chariot army as well and goes after Israel. And we see once again behind the scenes what's going on in verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Now... (coughs) It's easy to expect here God to kind of tap out. We, we wonder and we go, isn't enough enough? You know, we've gone through 10 progressively worsening plagues now. And over and over, God has been saying that the last plague, that was going to be the finish line. Pharaoh will resist and resist and resist until I kill his firstborn son and then he will command you to go out of the land. And so if we're reading this for the first time, it comes as somewhat of a surprise. Now, you may remember that the proclamation that's made throughout the story of the Exodus is that the reason God does this, the reason why he delays his judgment on Egypt, the reason why he continues to harden Pharaoh in resistance against him is so that he can show who he is. And we see that same statement here. And, and so he says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, and then all of Egypt will know. But it's striking, isn't it, that there remains to be seen uh, the power of God that's been unseen thus far, that there's more to say on who he is. Um, but nonetheless, <coughs> verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea, by Pihiroth in front of Baal-Sephon. 
Okay, and so you need to kind of picture the setting here. Israel is encamping with the Red Sea behind them and Egypt off in the distance, and now they see the dust cloud coming of all of Egypt's choice chariots and the rest of his armies. And so, verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. (coughs) Now, that statement to me is a little bit two steps forward, one step back, okay? What we see here is that Israel's impulse now, in this moment of danger, is directed towards God. You may remember when things started, and Moses Moses explained what was going to happen, uh, and the... Uh, leadership agreed with Moses and Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh the first time Pharaoh rewards that meeting with extra work for Israel and they all complain and they kind of reject Moses as a leader they've clearly moved on from that place their instinct now is to recognize that God slash or must slash can deliver them however it's worth mentioning that there's more to this than just this base phrase of cried out to the Lord. There's commentary given in the verses to come that views this in a negative light. Because there's another way we could think of this. Yes, their impulse is to recognize that they're in severe danger and cry out to the Lord, recognizing only he can do something. But we'll see they also feel like it's God who put them in this place. And so after 10 consecutive demonstrations of God's power, they really are truly and fully afraid. See, when we walk with God, our faith grows. At least it should. And so there are things that are difficult for us in years past that for now us to take the same posture would actually be a manifestation of unbelief. I've experienced that just in terms of provision in my life. I've watched as God has answered prayers so many times for the finances of my family in ways normal and natural and miraculous, in ways uh, that seemed uh, serendipitous and others that seemed outlandish. I've, I've seen it all in years to come. So now when the numbers aren't measuring up, when an unforeseen cost comes in, I still go to God for help, but the posture is very different. And I go to sleep, and I sleep well that night. To do anything less than that now would be unbelief because God has proven himself faithful. So there's a component here underneath of this. That's why I say it's two steps forward and one steps back. Um, But uh, let's let's look here (coughs) at what comes next. Verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And so they bring this complaint and they say, this is not the promised land. This is not deliverance at all. This is not better. If we had to choose a place to die, comfortably in our beds at home would have been better than dying here in the wilderness Uh, at the hands of the Egyptians. Did you notice the repetition of the word Egypt and Egyptians in their phrase? All they can think about is Egypt. And here's, here's the thing. 
where they're about to go is going to involve more unknown than known, more new than old, more exposure to things they've never encountered, difficulties that they've never had to assess. Yes, in Egypt there was slavery, but by nature there was food on the table. And they're going to be out in the wilderness, this entire nation of Israel wandering in a place, having to figure out day by day how to eat, right? All of these things are going to change. And effectively, what they express here is not necessarily, we had it so good in Egypt, although they'll get there. But here, it's kind of like that phrase we have that better the devil you know than the one you don't know. They know what it's like to be slaves. They know what the Egyptians can be like when they're, you know, being submissive. But the unknown is what's scary here. And what God needs to show them, what he still has to do in their hearts, is this recognition, yeah, totally. Better is the devil you know than the one you don't know, but better is the God that you don't know than the devil you know. It's the unknown here that's the question, but that's where they need to learn who God really is. And so they don't just cry out, they complain. They murmur, they grumble. That'll be a theme tonight and through the rest of the wilderness wanderings. And so they make this complaint, and look at what Moses says in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will have only to be silent. And so he tells them to do a couple of things here, to fear not, to stop being afraid, to stand still, not to run, not to freak out, uh, and then to see the salvation of the Lord. They say, he, he says here that the Lord is going to fight for them, that yeah, there's going to be a battle, but God is going to be their warrior and he's going to take care of it. <coughs> now, it's interesting here that Israel's role in this battle is stasis. It's to stand still. It's literally spectator in what's about to go on. Now, that's not always the case. A lot of times the way faith needs to look in our life is active. Trusting God looks like taking action. Trusting God looks like stepping out in obedience, not knowing how things are going to turn out. However, there are occasions like this one where faith looks like doing absolutely nothing. Okay, where faith or trust is expressed in standing still because this is something God said he would do, not something he's called you to do. If you remember the story of Abraham and how his son Ishmael came about, it's a perfect counterexample of this truth. God had said, I'm going to miraculously give you a child. And eventually Abraham and Sarah come to a place where they go, maybe what he meant is that we're going to come up with a way to make a child for God. And here, Moses' command for them is to stay put and watch. David Gutzik, who's a commentator, another Calvary Chapel pastor who I enjoy, um, says this about this passage. Moses told the people of Israel to stop. This is often the Lord's direction to the believer in a time of crisis. Despair will cast you down, keeping you from standing. Fear will tell you to retreat. Impatience will tell you to do something now. Presumption will tell you to jump into the Red Sea before it is parted. 
But as God told Israel, he often tells us simply to stand still as he reveals his plan. And so here, he calls for them to stand still. He says, basically, stand still and shut up and open your eyes. And then look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now, that seems chronologically to be a surprising statement. If we had not read Moses' exhortation to Israel, and we just had read their complaint that they were crying out to the Lord, and then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? That would be natural and normal. But to put this interjection in between where basically the people are crying out and complaining and Moses says, shut up, stand still, don't be afraid. And then for God to ask Moses, why do you cry to me? Seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? Now, one possibility is that Moses is leading beyond his own ability here. That he has confidence, but that confidence isn't complete And so privately and quietly, he's crying out to the Lord. But there's another thing that might be going on here, and this is the first place where we start to see a hint of it. Most likely here what's going on is God asks this question of Moses because he identifies Israel as Moses, or he identifies Moses as Israel. The distinction between the people and their leader is beginning to blur. We'll see this extensively as the story goes on. And so there will be this interchange between, um, you know, Moses operating as an intercessor on behalf of Israel. But the reason why this is interesting is because we've already seen a blurring of characters with Moses, but not with Moses and Israel, but Moses and God. And so Moses uh, is, is told that when Aaron speaks for you, it'll be as if you are Aaron's God and he is your prophet. When you stand and speak to Moses, it will be as if you are God, or when you stand and speak to Pharaoh, it will be as if you are God to Pharaoh and Aaron is your prophet. Um, Even when we go all the way back to chapters 3 and chapter 4, it says that God is going to come down and deliver his people, and then just a few verses later he says, I'm going to send you to bring my people out. And so we watch as the plagues, we have this hard time uh, answering the question, is this Moses and his stretching out the staff that's bringing the plague, or is this something that God is doing? And the answer, of course, is yes. And this is another um, blurred distinction that maintains throughout the book of Exodus. And so you see this interesting paradigm where Moses is sometimes blurred with God as his representative and sometimes blurred with Israel as the people that he's representing. He stands as this mediary, as this um, person in between the two. And it's intriguing that the Exodus becomes such a defining paradigm for what God is going to do, and that includes Moses. And so in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18, he speaks and he says, one day God is going to send you a prophet like me. And him you will hear, and those who reject him will be rejected. And in doing so, he effectively sets up the entire ministry of prophets that we walk uh, uh, the whole way through the Old Testament. But when he refers to them not just as a prophet, but a prophet like Moses, there's an important distinction there. 
Um, once again, we haven't gotten there yet, but there will come a time where Moses' leadership will be questioned, and others will go, couldn't we do just as good of a job? And God's going to defend Moses, and this is what he's going to say. He's going to say, look, I speak to my prophets and dreams and visions, but Moses, Moses I speak to face to face, right? He's unique among the prophets because he has this intimate relationship with God. And so Deuteronomy points forward to the fact that a prophet like Moses is going to come, one that's more intimate. This morning we were doing our um, section of the New City Catechism that our church has been walking through. If you're not familiar, a catechism is a collection of questions and answers that basically summarizes um, the doctrines of Christianity. And so our question this morning is, uh, uh, was, <coughs> what is necessary of our Redeemer? And the answer was that he be completely man and that he be completely God. And we see vaguely a shadow to the substance of that in Moses. We see this place where, where, like I said, the lines between him representing God are blurring and the lines between him being the people of Israel are blurring. And then we'll develop this more as we walk through Exodus um, and Numbers and Deuteronomy in particular. But here he speaks to Moses as Israel's representatives, and he says, why do you cry out to me? And then he tells him what to do. He says in verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, as far as I remember, this is the first time where God says that his goal, his objective here is glory. But really, the knowledge of God and the glory of God go hand in hand throughout all of Scripture. And so, I believe it's Habakkuk 2.14 that talks about the fact that God's plan is to cover the earth like the waters cover the earth with his glory. And the idea here is intimately related with this idea of knowledge, but the recognition here is that God will be seen as God. And Pharaoh, obviously, will be seen as merely a man. And so, <coughs> um, he adds here, verse 18, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots, and his horsemen. And so notice the first time this whole sea dividing thing is mentioned, who's going to know that Jehovah is the Lord? The Egyptians. Okay. But keep reading. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar and the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night, okay? Now, it's a little bit hard <coughs> to tell what's going on in these verses for a couple of reasons. First off, it suddenly mentions the angel of God. It says that he was out leading Israel and he moves to a position behind. Now, we haven't seen anyone by the name of the angel of God leading Israel, what we have seen is this pillar of fire and this cloud of smoke. And it's mentioned as well. 
One possible way to read these verses is the angel of God that is the pillar of cloud and the, or the, sorry, the pillar of smoke and fire um, as being synonymous here, okay? And actually, that makes a lot of sense because when you go back to the burning, of bu- uh, the burning bush, what's so striking about it is that it's this consuming fire that doesn't burn up the bush, but who does it tell us is in the fire? The angel of the Lord, Okay, and so there's this correlation here. And this imagery of smoke and fire maintains throughout all of the book of Exodus with the character of God, culminating in this Shekinah presence of God's glory that fills the temple. Um, the smoke and fire that surrounds Mount Sinai. This image runs throughout the entirety of it. But what's more important here um, than the identity of what's going on is what happens. And what it says is this pillar of cloud and fire that was out in front of them moves behind them and basically hides them from view of the Egyptians, okay? Now, <clears throat> the other thing that's difficult about this comes in where it says in verse 20, and there was cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night. And we have to go, wait, which was it? Was there darkness or light? And it may be, it may be that this is like when the darkness descended on Egypt in the plague the ninth plague, where Israel had light in their houses and Egypt only had darkness. So maybe the idea here is that it's nothing, nothing to be seen on the Egyptian side, but light on the other side, or it may just be this intermingling of smoke and fire. But either way, we see here that the purpose is basically to act like a curtain in the magic trick, okay? Because here's what's going to happen when the curtain lifts. Israel's going to be on the other side of the water, okay? What, what's about to happen is the Red Sea's going to part. That hasn't started yet. And over the course of this long night, whether it's caused by the cloud or the cloud just sits there and blocks their way and stops the army and they're just waiting all night long until, until morning. Either way, during that time, behind the curtain, Israel is making their escape, okay? Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so he stretches out his hand, no doubt with the staff, and the Red Sea parts. It mentions here that that was due to a strong east wind, and so they, there's a phenomenon to what's going on, you know, that's larger than just water. But when it says here that it became a wall to them on their right hand, on their left, this is the wall that you would use not for garden wall, which is a different word, but for city wall, okay? It's speaking of a relatively large wall of water here, okay? Um, And so they're passing through, and then verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Okay, so, so picture this, if you will. There's a standstill. There's darkness. There's waiting. They're not sure what's going on. And then somehow 
visibility clears and they see Israel almost completely across the Red Sea. They see the water to the left and to their right and they realize we have to act now. Now the reason it says here that the Lord threw them into a panic is because being in chariots, that was a terrible idea. You know how hard it is to bike in soft sand? Have you ever done that on the beach? Like, you get your bike down to the wet sand and everything's fine, okay? That's true, but that's sand. And what we're talking about is mud. And what happens is basically, although they're walking through on dry ground, it used to be a sea. And so the weight of the horses and the chariots just bog down in the midst of this, and now they're what we would call in modern English, sitting ducks, okay? So what it means here when it says it threw them into a panic is that they're not thinking, okay? Uh, you remember how that character uh, in Princess Bride says, never fight a land war in Asia? Never fight a chariot war on the, on the shore of anything, okay? Uh, and you can imagine then why chariots are a great tool for Egypt, because Egypt is just this big, flat, dry place, okay? It's the reason why Israel never really, especially under David, never really suffered from chariots, because if you get to Israel, it's all hills. And so chariots are not a good thing because they're very slow moving uphill. And so it was a safe place from chariots. But Egypt, the reason why they were the biggest power going is because they lived in a relatively flat part of the world. But here they find themselves in conditions that chariots weren't built for, despite what Little Mermaid would tell you. And so here what's happening um, is they get in and they can't get out. And they can't keep pursuing Israel. And then um, verse, uh, let's look at the tail end of verse 25 there. So clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights against fights for them against the Egyptians. Okay, so here they have the awareness that they're in deep. Okay. They they go, okay, now we run. This is the part where we run. And what they recognize here is we're not just fighting a bunch of runaway slaves. Okay. They've already had a taste of God's power and they can see the dominoes in place. They recognize what's about to go down. One commentator I read pointed out to maybe that's even why this idea of the darkness is so important here. Shouldn't that have reminded them of how it went last time? Egypt went dark for three days. The next scene, everybody dies. Okay, And so here they see and they just recognize that they're in over their heads, um, that they've made a mistake in verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course <coughs> when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so it finishes here with a contrast of their fates. Miraculously, Israel crosses through the Red Sea on dry ground. All of Pharaoh's armies is wiped out um, and drowns. Verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Listen to this. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Okay? And so as we've seen, God's purpose here is multifaceted. It's not just to have a victory over the Egyptians. It's not just to make his name to them or even to make his name known to the nations. Because one of the things we'll see as we move forward is (coughs) everybody hears about this. They recognize, they hear the story, they see Israel in the wilderness. Um, They hear of this great defeat. But also here, God is, like I said, beginning to teach his baby people, Israel, what life like him is like. And so it begins not with a victory of full participation. They're not ready for that yet. But with a victory where they're merely spectators. Okay. We'll see this pattern in the book of Joshua. Um, it repeats itself many times. Interestingly enough, when they come to the end of, wild- of the wilderness, they have to cross another body of water, the River Jordan, and that one's very different. This one, they wait until the waters separate and there's dry ground. In that one, the priests carrying the ark step into the river before it parts. Okay, there's a progression there. But God is teaching them that he is the Lord uh, and that Moses is his representative. Now, what we have following in chapter 15 um, is a hymn written to uh, memorialize that this took place. This is another pattern we'll see throughout scriptures that God does something and then people sing about it. And so Hannah prays for a son. God provides one. She miraculously becomes pregnant and she breaks out in song. Uh, You'll see this many times in the Old Testament. And so it says here in verse one, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, now, Clearly, on the shores of the Red Sea, there's some singing. Also, the song we're about to read is not that song. I'll show you that as we go through it. I just wanted to lay it on the table. Uh, it's, it's originally that song, but this song grows over time. It's a song that they sing, and the tradition behind it extends. And we'll see that. Notice what it says here. Uh, in the beginning, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And I want you to recognize that it's not just about a present tense victory, but this victory as a, uh, as a window through which they now understand who God is. And so they say the Lord is my salvation, my song, he's my strength. Not just something he did one time, but this is who he is, and we know who he is because of what he's done. Okay, continues on here. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, and you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. 
The flood stood up in a heap. Now we should pause there because the imagery there is, is relatively interesting. We see there's some um, anthropomorphic imagery. And so what was it, according to chapter 14, that caused the Red Sea to pile up? The wind, right? When it says here, the breath of the nostrils, this isn't saying um, what it sounds like it's saying. It's just recognizing that the, the, the wind came from God, that he's behind it, okay? And so it personifies it in that way. <clears throat> the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. And so, <coughs> like many of the songs of Israel, part of it is just the recap of what happened. It's done in poetic language. It uses the same Hebrew parallelism that uh, is strewn through the Psalms where it says the same thing in a slightly different way to emphasize the point, to see it from multiple angles. Um, but it also has a teaching component. And so it says in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Now we paused in the middle, so you might not have caught that, but it was talking, uh, oh, I'm not going to be able to find it at a glance. It'll come up in a second. Um, but notice here, it's, it's God who stretched out his right hand instead of Moses. We'll just point to that. Like I said, there's this overlap in these things. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till they pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your, own, your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so notice here it shifts from the character of God to the future God has for his people. And it's pretty specific here. <coughs> it names the enemies that are still to come by name. And interestingly enough, names them in the order they're encountered in the books to come. Uh, but it goes further than that. We see here that this isn't just something that was an ending, but also a beginning. And so God didn't just bring them out of Egypt. He's bringing them into the land. He's bringing them towards something. And so um, it says, verse 13 again, you have led them in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, when we ask what holy abode, there's a couple of answers. One would be Mount Sinai, okay? Now, that's already been known as, in the book of Exodus, the mountain of God. That is the next destination of interest, and God is going to personify himself in a powerful way at that mountain. It also may be referring to the promised land, right? That this holy abode is not, not just the abode of God, but the one that God has promised to the people, in fact, you may have noticed a reference right in these verses to the God of our fathers, okay? And so the promises are at play here. But most likely, 
the holy abode that's being referenced here is the temple. In fact, notice how specific this imagery gets um, in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And so it zooms in here on a specific mountain where God will have a sanctuary and where Israel will live, okay? That imagery is pushing past Mount Sinai. It's more specific than the promised land. It's zooming all the way in the story forward past the tabernacle to the temple that David's going to build in Jerusalem. And so when we look at this, when we look at the battles to come in the future tense, and we, when we look here as well at, um, at the temple that's to come, we have to recognize a couple of things. First off, no mention of the tabernacle yet, even though it's a major part of the book of Exodus. That part of the plan hasn't been revealed. Okay. Second, we need to recognize here that the enemies are seen in the present tense as shaking in their boots, as if Israel is walking in victory. And this may be merely prophetic. The poem here does something really interesting in the tense, okay? When we talk in English, we have past, present, and future, and most of the time it's relatively clear how those things work. In Hebrew, it's not simple at all. And although there is uh, these two ways to conjugate verbs in the Hebrew, you can do both of them and still refer to the past, or both of them and still refer to the future. What's fascinating for what I wanted to point out here tonight is that those two forms, they swing back and forth, not just in this section at the end, but throughout the whole poem. Almost one for one. So the verb is, um, let's see if I can remember what it is. I think it's perfect and imperfect. Don't quote me on that. But there's only two ways to conjugate verbs, and then we get the tense from a few other elements involved. But it swings back and forth between the two, not only in this place that's clearly future to the song, but also in the song itself. It reminds us of when we were looking at the Passover and we saw this interweaving between the Passover as it will be celebrated in the promised land and as it was going down as a historical event in Egypt. There's this bridging of context. Um, in fact, uh, we're going to see a reference, I'll point it out when we get there, um, that just reminds us of the fact that the book of Exodus isn't being written chapter by chapter as they're on their travels, right? It's something that's reflected on later where there's more information. I'll point out those places where we see it just so you can get the feeling for what I'm talking about. Um, but here's the point. The significance of this event in Israel's understanding grows over time. And so the song begins to reflect that. It grows from that. Like I said, I'm not saying that they didn't compose a song on the spot. We're going to see in a moment they absolutely did. But when it says here that Moses wrote a song and records it for us, it doesn't say that, that, that he wrote it on that day. In fact, in a second, it's Miriam who teaches the song. Okay. But the last thing I want you to notice here is that God's goal here is not merely freedom for Israel. The consequence of him bringing them out of slavery is not autonomy, but an alternative sovereignty. And so we see here that they're headed to a new throned king, 
They're headed to a new relationship. And what's going to be stressed in just a minute and throughout the rest of the chapters we cover tonight is the emphasis of obedience. Okay? The reason God brought Israel out is not just because they were enslaved, but because they were his people. Right? And so <coughs> this, this is the song, and then notice verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and the horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her in tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, that is, except for one word, the exact opening of the song we just read. If you go back and you look, Moses' song begins with, I will sing to the Lord. But Miriam's is an exhortation to the women, sing to the Lord. She goes out with the tambourines. And so what this chapter is laying out here is that on the day, Miriam leads the women in singing this song and Moses composes it for the book of Exodus. But by the time he has done so, he sees this as not just a single instance of God's victory, but as the beginning of a plan that has an ending, a culmination um, you know, with the people being planted, it's amazing how often the prophets pick up that, on that imagery, planted in the mountain of God with his sanctuary. And so, <coughs> um, verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So they've been out of Egypt for a while now. You may remember they rushed out the door and they had lots of unleavened bread. But now their water supply has run out. And so they come to this place, verse 23, called Marah. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah. Marah is just the Hebrew word for bitter. It's the same one that Ruth's, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, takes for herself after her son is lost, and she says, call me Mara, because God has dealt bitterly with me, okay? And so the emphasis here is you can see why it was named that, right? Because the water was undrinkable in whatever way. And, verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And so <coughs> we see here the people grumbling and going, you know, once again, why did you bring us out here? We thought there was going to be water. This water is undrinkable. All of our families, this is your fault, etc. And he cries out to the Lord, and it says that the Lord showed him a log. Now, a lot of the ways that God takes care of Israel throughout <coughs> the book of Exodus are unique. We'll see that over and over again. It's very similar to the miracles that we see Jesus performing in the Gospels. He heals lots of blind men, but never the same way twice. He heals lots of people, but the, the ways that he heals is very different. But it is worth noticing here that this is the first one on the books, and as we'll see in just a second, God is intentionally led them to this place, right? Why are they at Marah? Because Moses took a wrong turn? No. Even though it says that Moses moved them on from the Red Sea, what are they following? The pillar of fire, the, the pillar of smoke. They're moving and they settle just where they're supposed to and they taste the water and it's undrinkable. Not only that, but the, the fix for this is that God shows Moses a log, which is what? 
nearby, right? And he throws it into the water and it fixes the problem. What is it that God is doing here? Okay, we're going to get into that in just a second, but I just, by way of (coughs) illustration, I want you to think about how Hollywood tells stories. Okay, Hollywood has what I've always thought of as Hollywood optimism which means they reserve the right to tell the story they want to tell, which means things work out incredibly well. And so, yes, the hero gets knocked down, and the villain's coming up on him, and he doesn't have a weapon, but he looks to his left, and there's a steel pipe just within reach. That's Hollywood optimism. Why is that steel pipe there? Because the storyteller wants it to be, right? The solution to this problem is right there. And like what we see in the telling of a story is evidence of a storyteller, that's what, that's what God is beginning to do here. He gives them the chance to complain so that they can learn something different. See, here's the thing. Like I said, what God has right now at coming out of Exodus are free people, but it's an infant nation. They know that God delivers, but they don't know what it lo- looks like to live in a constant relationship with for many of us as we become Christians, it's very similar, right? Conversion is this drastic event where we see God for who he is, where we understand our need for him, where we cry out, and we recognize the tremendous aspect of that deliverance. But does life get suddenly easy? No, a lot of times it gets harder because we know what it's like to cry out to God for eternal life, but we've yet to learn how to trust him with our day-to-day life. And as we'll see in a second, that's the plan that God has for Israel. They know that he's God, but they need to really know him and live in light of those truths. And so he uses this time in the wilderness like a school. (coughs) And so um, he throws the log in, the water becomes sweet. Um, And then... There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to the commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. (coughs) Here God shows his hand. He says, I'm giving you a law and a statute. Now, this is clearly pointing forward to the law and the statute that is to come. In fact, the word here for law is Torah, okay? But when we look at this, we go, wait, where's the law? What's the rule? Is it that if they drink, if they find bitter water, then they should throw a log in? What's going on? He's not setting up here a particular rule, but a principle of relationship. What he's saying here is, I'm going to test you. And in doing so, you're going to learn that there's a correlation between obedience and me taking care of you. Okay? Now, not only that, but he says here, if you obey me, I will put none of the diseases that I put upon the Egyptians. Now, if you go looking for it, you will find books written that try and show the medical benefits of the kosher laws as they were presented. And basically, God's saying here that the law he's going to give them is preventative in nature. What's worth pointing out here, though, is that the word diseases is not the usual word that we would translate diseases. In fact, a lot of times it's used of repairing pottery. It it refers to something broader than just healing a disease, this idea of I am your healer. 
It's I am the one who makes you whole. I am the one who restores you. And what diseases came on the Egyptians? Was it really gout or was it these plagues? Okay, most likely what's talking about here is this contrast with the hard-heartedness of Egypt and their disobedience and this paradigm of obedience and God taking care of them. It uses the word test here. And that is a key word of the rest of the narrative. Not just tonight, but the entire wilderness watering. Not only will we see that God is testing Israel, but we'll see that Israel tests God. But those don't both mean the same thing. Okay? If we read this wrong, we're going to assume that God sets up a test for Israel knowing that they will fail. But that's not actually what this word always implies. It can. That he's just saying, let's see how you perform. It's interesting, one of the places (coughs) this word is used is when David tries on Saul's armor. And so he puts on this big actual warrior armor, you know. He puts it on, he's just a young shepherd, and it's way too big for him, it's too heavy. And he says, I cannot wear this because I've never tested it. Some translations rightly translate that, I cannot wear this because I'm not trained in it. Okay? What God is doing with Israel in this testing is training. His agenda for them is to teach them. What we're talking about here is discipline. And so here's the thing. They need to learn to trust God, and so God needs to demonstrate he's faithful. In a second, they're going to need to learn um, that God is going to be their daily provider, As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That is going to be their daily experience, right? When we do that, we have to think of that as an idea and filter it through the fact that we get a paycheck at the front of the month, right? And so it's not daily in that sense, or the fact that we have food in our pantry that will last till tomorrow. But the way Israel's going to learn in just a second, the food only is for today and it perishes tonight. You know, this whole thing of God as provider is going to be shown to them rehearsed to them so that when they have a pantry in Israel, so that when they're working and developing the land and they become the farmers, they don't forget who their provider is, okay? That's what it means here when it says that God is going to test them. It's very similar. Uh, in fact, listen, listen to what it says in chapter 20, verse 20. So 20, verse 20 says this about testing. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What's the goal of testing, according to Moses? You're learning who God is so that you don't sin against him. Okay? And so basically, this is obedience with training wheels. That's what the wilderness period is. This is such an important idea that in Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, be careful when you get into the land and things go well, don't forget what it was like in the wilderness, okay? But this isn't just an Israel thing. This is a following God thing. Listen to how Hebrews talks about what the author of Hebrews calls discipline. This is what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. Tell me if this sounds similar to what we've been talking about. Picking up in verse 5. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in all which you have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. So parallel here. Like Israel becomes a baby nation in the wilderness, it says here that when we become God's sons in the gospel, part of what that means is that he begins to discipline us. Now, it's really easy to read this in the sense of discipline when we screw up, right? And so basically, we don't get away with sin anymore because God cares about us too much. But it's intriguing that not only is sin never mentioned in this context, but there's another, there's another way to understand this that we'll look at in just a second. But let's continue on in the passage. Verse 9. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment, all discipline seems faithful, uh, painful rather than pleasant, but latter it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained by it. Okay? And so what this is saying is that God faithfully trains us how to recognize his holiness, how to live in righteousness, which is just another way of saying obedience. Now, here's the reason why I say that this is not merely just consequence for sin. This is not like uh, paper training a puppy, okay? It's something more than that. Because the author of Hebrews, just a little bit earlier in chapter 5, says this about Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Speaking of Jesus, <coughs> although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, that is really a mind-blowing verse, Okay? For one here, it says that Jesus, God himself in the flesh, learned obedience. Okay, but just recognize with me tonight that that's something God never has to do, to obey, to submit. But Jesus becoming a man, he walked through the process of submission and obedience. It's really a striking paradigm. When it says in Philippians that he did not consider equality with, uh, with God something to be grasped, but made himself as a servant, that's what's so profound about that thought, is that the Lord of the universe takes orders, okay? But the second thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus doesn't suffer and learn obedience because he's screwed up, because he sinned. He was sinless. And yet it's still suffering that God uses as the tool to bring about obedience, Okay? The discipline of the Lord is more than just how God deals with our failures. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says, all things work together for good. Everything in your life, God is using to teach you who he is. And like I said, if you look at your own Christian life and you've been a Christian for a while, this probably isn't that surprising. What we see in the wilderness narrative is that God sets up a difficulty to solve it in a way that reminds the people that he is their God. Okay? And that's what God desires to do in our lives as Christians. The goal of the Christian life is not independence. It's not like, oh man, you're such a screw up. I'm just going to start you over. I'm going to set you right. Now go and be 
No, it's dependence. God doesn't just call us out of the slavery to sin, but into a service of righteousness. Not just out of a slavery to idols, but into a worship and an obedience of him. Okay? And he does that primarily through allowing us to go through hard stuff. Because it's when we go through hard stuff that we remember that God is faithful. It's when we go through hard stuff that God shows his power. It's when we go through hard stuff that we learn who God is and then we can apply that in the light. Okay. And so that's what he's doing back in the book of Exodus. Let's, let's jump back there and continue. Okay. And so he says, <coughs> my plan here is to restore you. My plan here is to make you holy. My plan here um, is to make you obedient and show who I am. Verse 27, then they came to a limb where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. Why does it tell us that? Because this is what happened. Okay, once again, this isn't just a, um, an allegory where every part serves a purpose. It's not merely a narrative, you know, like a, like a myth would be that only has essential pieces it tells us that they came to this place because there were springs there, and it mentions here that, <coughs> that there were 70 palm trees. Why does it say that? Because somebody counted, okay? Chapter 16. They sent out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Why does it give us such a specific date? Once again, it's a historical narrative, but there's also significance to this date. Does anyone know what it is? The 15th day is the day they left Egypt. So when we get to the 15th day of the second month, guess what? They've been walking through the wilderness for a month now, okay? They've been at this for 30 days, and that's why it gives us this um, timestamp here. Verse 2, <coughs> the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. <coughs> so it's been 30 days. The water issue's been taken care of, first at, the, at Mara, and then they move on to a, a, you know, an oasis with all these palm trees, and they're there for a long time. And now they move forward, but there's a new pressure point. It reminds me of, um, of Battlestar Galactica. That series almost gave me a heart attack because it's so stressful. But the stress is always coming from a different quarter. And so, you know, here it's the Cylons, and now they're running out of food, and now there's an uprising in the prison boats. That's very much like what's going on in the book of Exodus without, without the robots or the sex, um, although we'll, we'll get to that. Um, not the robots. Um, but here, the pressure point is food. Most likely, they're not out of food because remember, they left with all sorts of animals. They're not even out of meat. They're just doing the math on how this thing is going and they're recognizing that the larder is emptying and they're not going to find a lot of extra sheep in the desert, okay? And so they come and they basically go, look, was this a very well thought out plan? At home, we had the meat pots, right? We just opened up, the meat was there, it was filled up all the time. Um, you know, we had all the bread we could eat. 
And they complain and they criticize and they murmur again. Now, I'm not going to talk much about murmuring tonight because it's going to come up later in a stronger way. But let me just point out to you that a major sin issue for the people of Israel during this time is ingratitude and grumbling. And we can so downplay those things as not being a big deal. If you just keep reading, it's a big deal. Okay? Because when you grumble and when you complain and when you express ingratitude, you are stating blasphemously that God is not good. When he is. It's a denial of the character of God. So they grumble and they complain. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and your people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. (coughs) So notice two things. In fact, we'll call it three. Three things. One, God's already got a plan for this, right? He's not surprised by this action. Uh, Two, He says here what he's about to do is to rain food from heaven. Not only is that unexpected, but it clearly speaks of extravagance, does it not? Okay. And then three, it says once again that he's going to do this to train them, to see if they will obey, to teach them how to obey. Like I said, what they're going to learn is that God is their provider. And so, verse five, on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So, Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Did I just cycle? What in the world just happened? I felt like I time-trapped. Yeah, it just repeats itself. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Okay, and so here's the point. He says, God has heard you, but let's just get one thing straight. You're not complaining about us. You're complaining about God. And he's heard you, and he's going to show you the God he is all over again. That your criticism does not apply. Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Once again here, the idea is not just proving who God is. It's getting them to live in light of that truth. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13, in the evening, (coughs) quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Or in the Hebrew, manaha. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Okay, and so first we have the phenomenon, and it's just mentioned here. It says that it comes like the dew in the morning, that it looks a little bit like frost, um, but it's actually bread from heaven, okay? It's a miraculous provision uh, of sustenance. 
And now we get the command, verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it, it was an omer. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now, <clears throat> what he says here is when you gather, only gather enough for each person, which should average about an omer, okay? And then it says that they went out, and when they gathered, they brought it back to measure, and all the measurements came out equal, even though some had gathered more and some had gathered less. One of two things. This could be another <coughs> miraculous happening, of which there are plenty in this narrative, that even the greedy ones come back, and, you know, they've got a pile full, but when they weigh it out, it's the same as everybody else, and that those who didn't, you know, work hard enough graciously are given but it also may be that they're being consistent and so when they measure they scrape off the top and they fill in the jars of the ones who measured too little till everyone has equal one of the reasons why that idea is compelling to me is because in the new testament when it talks about the church providing for one another these are the verses it quotes so that those who gather not enough had enough and those who gather too much didn't have too much um, and so whatever's going on here what we're seeing is that they are only getting the omer a day, okay? Um, verse 22, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that's left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till morning and Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms of it, worms in it. All right, so we missed something. Let's just jump back very quickly to verse 19. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms, and it stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. And so the first lesson they learn here is that they only get today's portion for today. And any of them who try and save it for tomorrow so that they don't have to go out and gather again, or maybe just because they didn't eat too much, when they wake up, it's just gone to rot. It's full of maggots. It smells bad. Um, and so they learn very quickly to just rely on today's portion. But here we see that on the sixth day, they gather twice as much, and they're told specifically, save it for tomorrow, and everything's going to be okay. Counterintuitive, is it not? Okay. Intentionally here, God is pressing the miraculous. He's not playing by the rules because he wants to teach them a lesson. And that lesson is this idea of Sabbath, this idea of rest. Okay. Now, the Sabbath is rooted <coughs> excuse me, in two phenomenons in the Pentateuch. One is creation. Because God created the world in six days and on the seventh he rested. God rested, so we do. Okay. But the other is the fact that they were brought out of Egypt and are no longer slaves. Okay. Slaves, by definition, don't get a day off. And so the Sabbath is an expression of freedom. But here we see a minor or a sub-emphasis to those two ideas, which is the fact that God will faithfully provide even if you don't work all seven days. Okay. And so the Sabbath is also an expression of faith in God as provider. And they learn that hands-on in a tremendously miraculous way, right? An object lesson every week 
that they can experiment with if they want, and it will not go well for them, right? And so every night, if they keep some for tomorrow, it will go bad, except for the night where they gather up two because they're going to rest on a God-appointed holiday, and then that will, they'll last. Do you see what he's teaching them here? <coughs> the Sabbath is not reiterated in the New Testament. It's the only, uh, t- only of the Ten Commandments that's not specifically restated for the church. But the principle of Sabbath is not about the Jews. Jesus says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay? This idea of resting every seventh day is God's gift. And I'll say it tonight, and I'll say it forcefully. If you can't regularly take a day off, you are a slave. You are a slave. And you might be a slave to your ambition. You might be a slave to providing for yourself. But we have to learn, like Israel did, to trust that God will provide. And the Sabbath is a great thing because this is what it says. It says, today the universe doesn't need me because I am not God. So they learn this hands-on. Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Okay? And so what's the emphasis here? Not merely their disobedience, but also their disobedience isn't going to get them anywhere. It's not like later in the Sabbath laws where they can actually make money on Sunday so it's worth going out. There's nothing to be found. Okay? God is really pressing these truths into them. Verse uh, 27, Uh, again, so it rolls into 28, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out on his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Basically, God says, look, I'm doing this for you. Don't disobey. It's in your best interest to take the day off, and I've prepared so that you can do so. Verse 31, now the house of Israel called its name, this substance, manna. Like I said, most likely it comes from this idea of what is it, okay? They don't really know what to call it, and that becomes its name. Um, It's probably, I don't actually know the origin of the name for Tang, but since it was made by astronauts, it's probably something similar, right? Um, And so it tells us here it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey, okay? And so crushed up Nilla wafers is what I think of. I don't know about you. Verse 32, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. (coughs) And so he says, hey, Somebody go out and gather a jar, and we're going to keep this jar for our children and their children's children in perpetuity, okay? Now, once again, striking, not just making it through one night or two night, but consistently, right? This thing no longer has a shelf life. It's, it's a manna Twinkie. Uh, it's going to last forever. But it also shows us the purpose here. Why? Because Israel as a nation, not just these Israelites, but Israel as a nation is to learn that God is the provider, And so they're to have this constant visual aid for teaching people in the future, hey, take a Sabbath, God will provide for you. Hey, God is our provider. We work, but we work with the gifts that he's given us. He is the one who gives life. 
Verse 33, and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna of it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Remember how I told you that there were future references in this book because the book is written later? Here's a clear one. Eventually, this little jar of manna is going to end up in the ark next to the Ten Commandments, the testimony, okay? There is no testimony at this point. For now, they're just carrying the jar, but the author is interested in showing its final destination, and so he reads forward in the story. Let me just remind you that the original audience reading these books, the five of them that collectively we call the Pentateuch, already know about the tabernacle, the temple, the ark. Most likely, they already know about the conquest in in Joshua, um, because that's kind of where this whole thing comes together. Um, verse 35, the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. Another future reference, okay? So it tells us right up front that this is their breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 years. Now, maybe you say, well, what about the quail? It may be that the quail are included here and not mentioned. It also may be that the quail is just to make a point and deal with an immediate need. It's like, okay, the people need to eat tonight. I'm going to feed you tonight, and tomorrow we start class, Okay? I think that's the most likely reading because a little bit later they're going to complain again about not getting meat and it's not going to go the same, okay? Um, But either way here, they continue to eat this miraculously provided, not playing by the rules of nature, what is it, bread, uh, for 40 years. It's what sustains them in the wilderness. (coughs) They ate the manna till they came (coughs) to the border, (coughs) excuse me, of the land of Canaan. And then it adds one more clarification for the audience. An omer is the tenth of a part of an ephah. Now, why does it say that? Because the omer as a measurement falls out of use by the time the book is finished. And so it adds a clarifying note so that people get the general idea of how much we're talking about here. Okay, I want to cover just um, the next seven verses because, because I want you to notice here that we're on familiar territory. Verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Pause. Have we been here before? Okay. In fact, notice that there is a chiastic structure to what we just did. What we're going to move on to in verse 8 is their first battle, but before that, between the uh, Red Sea battle and the battle with the Amalekites that's about to happen, we have water, food, water, okay? That's a chiastic structure. It's one that the authors use entirely. It tells us that the lesson he really wants to teach us, we've already learned. It was in the center with the manna part, but this is just to reiterate the point and close it off in the same place that we started. And so here they're in a different place, but there's a water issue. (coughs) Verse two, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Here's the other side of what happens in the wilderness wandering. God is testing them, and that's a very positive thing. But it's also true that the people are testing God, and that's a negative thing. In fact, notice how it went from grumbling to quarreling. Okay, There's an escalation here. We'll come back to that in... (coughs) Well, actually, let's just deal with it. You'll see both of these paradigms of God's good plans for the wilderness and Israel's disobedience in the wilderness run parallel throughout the rest of the scriptures. 
And so I don't have time to read them with you, but if you were to look at Deuteronomy 132 and Psalm 78, 15 through 21, you'll see on one side it says, hey, God graciously provided for you in the wilderness to teach you who he is. And the other is going to say, you constantly rebelled against God's goodness over and over again. You tested him, as Moses says, these 10 times. Okay? Both of those are phenomenons of what's going on here. But let's close out here, verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Okay, so things are getting serious here. They're not just saying, you brought us out to kill us. They're saying, we're going to kill you. Okay, and so this is what happens in verse, uh, verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah because the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, and so this place is known as Massa and Mirabah, quarrel and testing. But I want you to notice here, he sends Moses on a little expedition to a rock and he's to take the elders of Israel with him. And if you read this very closely, the rock is in Horeb, the people are in Rephidim. Okay, and so what happens in this is basically a new river that goes from the rock all the way to the people, and now they have a place to drink in Rephidim, okay? So why does he take the elders with him? Obviously, as witnesses, to see what's about to happen. And one of the reasons is because they need to know that this is not just some river. This is a river that God has provided. But there's a second reason. <coughs> you see, when Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, wants to warn us, about our own testing of the Lord and idolatry, wants to recognize that our lives today as Christians is some like, somewhat like the wilderness wandering. God's plan is to use difficulties to train us, but it also provides all sorts of opportunity for rebellion. And so he says, look, they were all baptized in the same water. They all followed the same leader, Moses. And then he says, but they didn't all make it to the promised land. And he gives this warning. But what's interesting is as he's listing the things that happens, he says that they were provided water from the rock, and then he drops the bomb. He says, and that rock was Christ. Okay. Now, here's what's really interesting. <clears throat> First off, this rock is going to occur again in a slightly different place. And when the rabbis read this, they assumed that meant that the rock followed Israel. Okay, that as they moved, the rock moved too, and they always had this kind of on-tap rock water. Okay? Um, and Paul almost seems like he's aware of that phenomenon, but that's not what he's talking about. Okay? He's not saying, hey, that rock was Jesus in disguise. He's recognizing the significance of the rock and how that's fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 7, Jesus is attending the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you may remember, the Feast of Tag Tabernacles celebrates what? God's provision during the time of the wilderness. And on the last day of the feast, John tells us that Jesus stands up. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and he will drink and I will put in him fountains of living water that will, you know, gush up to everlasting life. When Paul says, and that rock was Christ, 
he's recognizing the fact that the exodus is a personification of what God is going to do. Why is he giving them these lessons in the wilderness? For a future reason. Because there's an exodus still to come. And that exodus is accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so we'll get into this more as we move through the book, but, <clears throat> but the reason why it's valuable for us to wander in the wilderness with Israel is because it shows the same God who saved us. In fact, it shows us the same God who saved us in the same way, with a mighty victory and a strong arm. And there's some surprises in that, right? Because Moses' sin keeps him out of the land. And we'll get to that later. Here, he strikes the rock, and it's the striking of the rock that lets him in. Jesus allows himself to be struck, Isaiah 53, fulfilling that prophecy. And our life comes from his sacrifice, so there's still some things that aren't on the table. We'll need the tabernacle and the sacrifices in Leviticus to, to round out the whole picture. But right here, there's already pictures, personifications, shadows and glimpses of what God is going to do. And he does this big dramatic exodus to create a paradigm of salvation that he's going to do on a bigger and a grander scale, just as he promised back in the book of Genesis. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, you said if anyone seeks to be your disciple, we had to take up your cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. You said that a life of following you would include tribulation. But we see tonight that like Israel, you have that as part of the plan to accomplish a true thing to show us who you are, to train us in your ways, to conform us to your image, to make us your holy people. <clears throat> the salvation you want to do for us is not just to deliver us from the external enemies and powers that stand against us, but to finally defeat the enemy within, to train us in the paths of righteousness, and to raise us as your children into maturity, to the fullness of the stature of Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that we would lean in <coughs> into those things and that we wouldn't ask, why is this happening to me? Because we know why it's happening. And that we wouldn't ask, where is God? Because we know that you're right in the midst of these things. And that we would truly learn the lessons, knowing that although we think that we sometimes live in perilous times, a lot of times the perilous times are the easy times. Because we can be foul-weather Christians that are so aware of our need for God when things are hard and completely forget and neglect you when things are good. So I pray that we'd learn these lessons deeply and we would live not just as people who were saved, but as people who are being saved day by day, learning what it's like to be loved by the Lord Jehovah. We ask this tonight in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.